You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hello, and welcome to tonight's program with Inform at the Commonwealth Club. My name is Mary Roach. Please join me in welcoming tonight's speaker, author, and New York Times contributor, Dr. Jen Gunter. Dr. Gunter is widely regarded as the Internet's resident OBGYN, working hard to debunk the prevalent myths about women's health that plague social media. Dr. Gunter is the author of the Vagina Bible, the Vulva and the Vagina, separating the myth from the medicine. Uh, Dr. Gunter, thank you for being here tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Um, I am so nervous to be holding a pen and a stark white leather chair. <laughs> I'm going to put this over here. Okay. So um, I, I just want to start saying I, I adore this book and I adore you and I want the Vagina Bible to be as ubiquitous in American homes as the Bible. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I want that too. <laughs> so all of you go and buy this book when we're done up here. Um, I just thought I, I will just start by saying uh, I'm, I'm interested in uh, how the how did the transition come about from Dr. Jen Gunter, gynecologist, to Dr. Jen Gunter, crusader, author, superstar. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, before I had my own pregnancy, I sadly never thought as much about the patient experience. And then when I had my very complicated pregnancy, which was a triplet pregnancy, and one of my sons died, and my other two children were in the intensive care unit for a very long time. And then on top of that, I had other diagnoses like cerebral palsy and severe heart problems that needed surgery. And I just thought, how do, how do people manage? And so I found myself sitting in the intensive care unit, you know, waiting areas with other parents and helping them interact. And they'd come out and they wouldn't understand what happened. And I say, well, I think the doctor meant this. And, and it just seemed like it was such a, they were all so close to making the connection, but they weren't quite there. And after when my kids got a little bit healthier, I realized that I had got sucked down internet rabbit holes, just like everybody else. I mean, one, I've always been obsessed with evidence-based medicine. And one night I thought about taking my kids for stem cell treatment. You know, when you have a son with a heart condition that can't be fixed, yeah. when you have a kid with cerebral palsy who is still like having trouble standing on one foot at the age of five, you're thinking, maybe there is something else. And so that's yeah. how I got into writing about myths online. Yeah. And I thought, if that's what's there for parents of premature children, what's it like for my patients? Yeah. And so I kind of got online because I thought, I'm going to fix the medical internet, and here we are. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to uh, start with a little bit of uh, basic anatomy. Um, there's been a rather lopsided emphasis on the male equipment, and this is, goes way back, including some of the illustrations and drawings. I wonder if you could describe a little of that. <laughs> yeah. So since the beginning of medicine, I mean, at the beginning of when the time of Hippocrates, and it's really interesting, uh, most historians don't actually believe he was even a real person, um, that, uh, that you know, the um, cadavers were all male because it was inappropriate to look at, you know, even a naked dead woman and the, never mind examining a live one, right? And so all of medicine was basically, you know, a, a midwife, a woman explaining to people and they wrote it down in a textbook. They're like a bad game of telephone, right? And then <laughs> and then the dude would be like, yeah, I don't think so. I think this is what it is really. So it's like mansplaining like from the beginning. So you have that kind of like history, but it, you know, even when I was in medical school, so I pulled back, like I kept a lot of my textbooks. And so I looked at my anatomy book, which was Just published- like 88 or something? Um, yeah, I think it was published maybe in like 86, 87, yeah. something like that. So there's three pages with illustrations of the penis, beautiful color plates. And the clitoris was this tiny little inset up in one corner. It was puce. And, <laughs> and it was labeled the miniature penis. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, what the? Uh, yeah, yeah. I've seen it referred to as 
a vestigial penis. A vis- yeah, yeah, like right. no, no. So this is the gold yeah. standard, actually. Yeah. You know, yeah, so yeah. I always like to point out, and this is something that a lot of women find really empowering: is the clitoris is the only organ in either men or women that is designed solely for sexual pleasure. Right. It has right. no other function. Yeah, and part of part of the issue, I think, is that the, the, the correct me if I'm wrong, but the clitoris, uh, so much of it is hidden. Oh, yeah. So it's like the the part that gets all the press is kind of the tip of the iceberg, which is a terrible way to describe a right, clitoris. Exactly. <laughs> so, or but, or worse, the little man in the boat. The little man I'm in like, the boat. Yes. Really? Right. You can't even call it the little woman in the boat. <laughs> Like, and yeah. yeah, so yeah, I know the little tic-tac part. Could you walk us through kind of like uh, uh, a little, uh, a guided tour of what is underneath? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I like to think of the clitoris as a butterfly. So yes, exactly. Um, and so the head of the butterfly is like the part that you see, and that's called the glands. And the body of the butterfly is like the body of the clitoris. And the the top part of the wings kind of folds down underneath the labia and wraps around the urethra. And that's uh, the clitoral bulbs. And then the the lower part of the wings wraps a little bit further back. And that's the carrera. And that's all the clitoris. And Almost it's, like a wishbone. It's, yeah, yeah, it's sort of like a double wishbone. Yeah. That would also be a, a good way to describe it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I just think butterfly sounds, you know. Yeah, okay. uh, <laughs> you know. yeah, wishbone has that on the... Yeah, you snap yeah, oh, it. Oh. And yeah. yeah, right. And so, yeah. And so, so, you know, we, um, on, I have a TV show in Canada called Gensplaining and we actually built a 3D model. I know, right? Gensplaining. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And we, we built a 3D model of the clitoris on the show because I think everybody should know that like using a toilet paper roll and a McDonald's straw and some clay. I'm very crafty. Um, (laughs) And so, although I was practicing for the show and I was rolling it all out, you know, you have to remember my house, there's like pictures of vaginas and vulvas everywhere and models. My kids just, 16-year-old boys are just used to ignoring it. But my son, Victor, is very good with clay. And he was building something and I was practicing. And then I realized he'd been staring at me for a long time. And I looked up and he said, Mom, you're ruining my childhood. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The fact that um, the clitoris is fairly ubiquitous down there, as they say. And the fact that, that, that it, there's so much interconnectedness, I mean, it's all through the vulva. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it kind of makes this whole debate about clitoral versus vaginal orgasm kind of silly because it's all absolutely involving. Absolutely. The, the whole idea of a vaginal orgasm, meaning an orgasm achieved only with penile penetration, is something from Freud. And, you know, I always think... Every piece of information I put in that book, before I decided how I was going to write about it, I thought, how does that benefit men versus how does that benefit women? And yep. that's like a red pill. Once you've done that, like you can't see anything the same way. Um, and so, so yeah, so I'm like, okay, wow. So how does a, a mature female orgasm only achieved by a penis, how does that benefit women? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't really yeah. at all, does it? Um, and that, you know, only a third of women can, or- can orgasm with sole penile penetration. And that's because the penis is hitting part of the clitoris, whether it's the glands, whether it's the body and the root, whether it's the clura, whether they've had, you know, they're getting stimulation of the labia, which has right. erectile tissue, which also brings sort of the clitoris in. Um, but it's still all, all roads lead through the clitoris. Right. So it doesn't matter if right. you're stimulating externally, stimulating internally. It doesn't matter how you got to the party. It matters that you were at the party. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly, exactly. And there's been, um, in recent years, some kind of interesting and dubious newcomers to the anatomy of women, like the the G-spot. You do hear a, a fair amount about the G-spot. Does this, where is this thing? Does it even exist? Sort of unicorn of the vagina. Yeah. So it's really interesting. The original paper, so I pulled every original paper for this and they don't say what people think they say. So the original paper written by Dr. Grafenberg describes- uh, The G and G-spot. The G and G-spot describes a sensitive area and what we call the anterior wall of the vagina. So between the the urethra and the vagina, that's kind of spongy and large. And and he thought that was likely erectile tissue from the clitoris, which is what it is. Um, It's not some like button to press. It's not like, is it here? Is it here? Is it here? It's like, oh my God. 
The ceiling needs painting. I don't know what to tell you. Like, you know, so, so this idea that, you know, there's this, this like one secret spot that you can touch is so harmful because when women don't have an orgasm with that spot, there's something wrong with them. And right. if you think that it's all erectile and it's going to engorge, you know, in different days with different partners, different areas might feel right. good and that's right. okay. Right. And aren't there, there now this, this sort of dubious organ, there's, there are, um, procedures like in injecting, yeah. the, what is it? The, the O shot and the G shot, those are very predatory um, and not based on any science. And they have zero studies, like zero. Uh, and I just think that women deserve better than zero studies with that are based on the wrong, knowledge, wrong sexual knowledge with absolutely no idea about what the complications could be. And I've actually seen people with complications of those procedures. Mm -hmm. And if you think about them biologically, there's no actual way they could help. Right. So, you described it as, because it, it, it's basically like blowing in insulation. Right. Yeah. Why would like, you want more insulation in there? I want to like, you know, increase the sensitivity, yeah. not dampen it. Like, yeah. Yeah. There seems to be sort of a craze for just like, let, I don't know, let's just try injecting something. Stem cells. They're just, just such a proliferation of procedures. Yeah. I didn't, uh, you know, injecting stem cells into your elbow, into your hip, into your, I don't know what. And I had no idea injecting Stem cells into the clitoris. This yeah. is a thing. Yeah. It? yeah, well, it's not a thing anyone should do. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's um, it's very dangerous. We have no idea what that could ha what could right. happen from that, and it's very predatory. And we know from all these unregulated stem cell clinics that people actually have real complications from it. And that always makes me think of you know like what if I had taken my kids to have those injections? We see people with spinal tumors. Like we yeah. don't know what we don't know about some things. And I understand that that people are desperate. But the majority of sexual problems it, are not going to be solved with a shot. They're going to be right. solved by having in-depth discussions about your relationship, which people don't with want to your hear. say gynecologist. And I think that 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 is not something all women know that maybe they can do. Like that that is the obvious go. to I mean, right? I mean, yeah. that is, it, are most gynecologists? comfortable with women coming to them with sexual issues or do they feel like, oh, I'm really just more of a vagina and vulva person? Well, I might you be know. on one end of that spectrum. <laughs> As yeah. you can imagine. Um, so unfortunately, no, all OBGYNs aren't comfortable talking yeah. about it. And it's really a shame because they should be. But the thing is, is, you know, everybody in medicine always forgets, like, if you don't know something about it, you can always phone a friend. We have consults, right? Yeah. So yeah. if you're not comfortable talking about it, you can say, I know this woman who is, her name's Jen Gunter, yeah. and she will talk <laughs> with you about sex. So you're like, I'm really good. I don't need to talk about it anymore. Um, you know, or we can refer you to a sex therapist, right? right. Who right. can right. help you with those yeah. things. So there, there are professionals. So yeah. if you're not the person who can have that conversation, the most important thing to do is to, to hear the person out, not shut them down and then say, hey, I can send you this great person. Right. And, and that's it. And then the problem right. is solved. Right. Um, it, it, do, do you have this sense, and, and, and I, I, I have this sense, and I may be completely wrong, but it just feels like oversight is, is sort of gone. It's kind of like, you know, you look, you, you know, just there's just so much, whether it's on the internet or on you know, ads on television, just people making these ridiculous claims. Like what happened to the you know, FDA? Like, all we have now is Dr. Jan Gunter. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot. Well, but I mean, yeah, I is it is it are they just overwhelmed with the just the magnitude of sheer bullcaca that is coming at them in the form of well, I think the problem is the rules are written that the only people who really have to have things studied, and even then it's marginally so, are pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you have a new antidepressant, if you have a new birth control pill, you know, you're going to have to go through layers and layers and layers of, right. of things to get that approved. And still, even in that situation, you know, big pharma doesn't always release all their data. With procedures, it's totally different. Yeah. And it's basically like the Wild West. And the problem is procedures are cool. I mean, a really good example is robotic surgery, which is almost never better than conventional laparoscopic surgery, but it's cool. It's the robot, but it's mm -hmm. almost never better. Now we know there's actually real complications from it. Like we we used mm. to say, it used to be everybody was getting the robot for their cervical cancer surgery. We actually know now there's a higher rate of um, your cancer returning if you have robotic oh, wow. surgery for cervical cancer versus traditional surgery, wow. right? So when we rush these things because they sound cool yeah. and every hospital wants to get one because you want to go to the place with the cool new stuff, right. there are real consequences. And so I think every single thing, be it um, a pharmaceutical agent or a new piece of surgical equipment should have the same degree of oversight. Mm -hmm. And that's how wellness gets in, right? Because they don't right. have to. They don't have to prove anything, right? They, you know, they yeah. can make all kinds of claims. They can take four trillion dollars a year, right. and you know, well, buyer beware.
Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, on the just on the topic of procedures, labiaplasty. I remember this kind of this kind of crept up on me. Like all of a sudden, there's like people getting surgery to reduce the yeah. size of their labia. Like what? Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> it's it's. Is that, I mean, are are there a, a significant percentage of it's the labia minora that are being right. reduced? Right, the inner. Right, the inner. Are there are a significant number that are like. Flat, I mean, you? I mean no. what? No, there what's aren't. What's going on? So, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years. And I would say up till about 10 years ago, you would see the very occasional woman who has a clear size discrepancy related to childbirth, some kind of trauma. And almost always she was going to go back out dating. And she's like, you know, I just kind of like want to look vaguely symmetric, vaguely uh, like yeah. I did before. Yeah. And you could understand that, right? Yeah. You could be like, wow, yeah, this isn't how you looked before. It's right. pretty clear looking. And she's not asking for the other side to be changed. She just wants to right. be vaguely symmetric. Right. And there's this idea, people think they should be identical and they're sisters, not twins. So that's important <laughs> to people to know. But there's this idea now and they actually call it, it's, I just learned the term recently, it's called an Audi vagina. Whoa, whoa. And that's when the labia minora protrude beyond, beyond the labia majora. That's how 50% of women are built. 50% wow. of women are built that way. It's not abnormal. It's not normal. It's just the way we're built. That's like saying having brown hair is abnormal. Like, like this, right, like, right. And that this is being, this is now a medical condition that you can... Well, if that, you're a predatory plastic surgeon, right, yes. yes. Right, um, right, right. But, you know, and the studies tell us that a male plastic surgeon is most likely to do the procedure and a female gynecologist is most likely to talk the patient out of it. Yes. Um, and a recent study from the, in the British Medical Journal, no, British Journal of OBGYN, actually showed that every single woman presenting for labiaplasty had labia that were considered within the normal range. Right. Right? It's, yeah. And the concerning thing about it is, well, you could say, well, sure, you want to modify your body. People get nose jobs. They get, you know, facelifts, they get things done. And that's fine. Except the labia minora are sexually responsive. Yes, right. You're reducing an organ that is part of your sexual pleasure. And mm -hmm. this idea that it should, that the normal variant should be considered like ugly is just, that's not right. And so I think that most of these decisions about these surgeries are coming from very young women who may not have realized their full mm -hmm. sexual potential, right. right? And that's why having the surgery now under the age of 18 is considered right. female genital mutilation. It's considered a federal yeah. crime. Yeah. So but, as right. it should be. And is, is some of that coming from um, exposure to pornography, wherein women are chosen for the quote-unquote petiteness, I guess, of their labia minora? I mean, I, I, I mean, do they hear do, that. I mean... I don't know how they select yeah. people, but it's really do they, interesting. Yeah, do they have to submit like not only a headshot, but like a vulva shot? <laughs> Probably. But you know what's really interesting is, you know, the, that this ideal of a very large penis is considered the desire, right? Yeah. Um, although they can be too large. But no, I mean, I'm, but you know, I'm just kidding. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> there is always a way to work with it. Um, so I am a lot of fun to date. Um, so... <laughs> So, so, but it's, it's fascinating to me that society thinks a large penis is, um, is the gold standard and the penis is certainly, you know, an organ of sexual pleasure, but an organ that's part of the female sexual pleasure should be smaller. Like that. Yeah. And young women are clearly getting that message yeah. because it's, it's primarily young women coming in coming for the in. procedure. So I think that yeah. it's super, this is where informed consent yeah. is super important that you say to someone that, you know, that you're built as, as a normal person. And a lot of this comes out, it's really, there's a, a some body image dysmorphia as part of it. Um, and so that's why it's super important to have informed consent and right. say that, you know, you're reducing an organ of sexual pleasure. Is yeah. that what you want to do? Yeah. Didn't you say something about there's some male surgeons who are talking about, you know, it might be uncomfortable to ride a bicycle. Yes. The, the, the labianor might be pulled on. It's like, what's between your legs? I know, right? <laughs> like, you're like, on a bike. Like men sit on scrotum and a penis. <laughs> There's no labia yeah. that size ever. Like that's not what happens. They're able to sit on a bike seat. Yeah. So I think that, you know, and there's I've seen I've seen surgeons advertise for women to look sleeker in their yoga pants. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, wait a minute, and the wait evil a minute. Camel toe. Cam I hate that. So it's la don't call it camel toe, call it labial cleavage. See? <laughs> I would like a day where every person in the country wore a t-shirt that said, love your labial cleavage. <laughs> 
I mean, why not? Right. So, but yeah, so it's really fascinating to me that, that organs of sexual pleasure, that, that our society for women wants to diminish them. Yeah. And, but for men, you know, this idea that a guy, like I just, someone sent me this thing from, I don't know, like 10 hot rock gods in tight jeans. And it's like all these like, you know, rock stars with clearly you can see everything through their pants and that's considered awesome. Uh, so yeah. I just, I just think women right. should get to claim the same thing. One of my favorite lines in the book is, is you're talking about this, um, this girl who came to you and said that her mother had said that her labia were too large and, um, or, or the mother, the mother contacted you yeah. and said, you know, what do you advise? And you, you said, my advice is to stop looking at your daughter's labia menorah. <laughs> I mean, this is how young This book is really funny. <laughs> But this is how women get body image disorders, right? That they're, yeah. our society, every image, and it's not, it's really not just pornography, right? Like yeah. if you look at like bathing suits and Sports Illustrated, you look at all these things, I'm thinking like, I can get my labia in that. Like how, how am I going to get like in there? <laughs> I, like I, I just, like how, who fits in that? Yeah. Like how much of that is Photoshopped? Like we don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. So, so every image that I think, yeah. you know, is, um, is sort of, the women's anatomy is sleeked out as if, you know, because again, I guess men are still afraid of the clitoris. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And the labia, what the hell? Yeah, I know. Right. The whole package. Oh yeah. Um, uh, the, uh, on the topic of pornography and ideas that it, it imparts, um, there, there seems to be a little bit of a concern about, um, pornography sort of standing in for sex education. Yes. And my other favorite line in the book, forgive me, um, <laughs> learning about sex from watching porn is like learning to drive by watching car chases in movies. <laughs> you know, like it, porn is, is a fantasy. And if that's what turns you on, that's great. But that's, it's not a documentary. And yeah. it's amazing to me that how many people come into the office yeah. and they'll actually say, well, they do this in porn. And I'm like, but, but it, that's acting. Yeah. That, and that's okay. Is that something you want to do? Yeah, like yeah. that's that's right. a fantasy. And if that's what turns you on and that's what turns your partner on and it's all consensual, that's great. I'm yep. all yep. for fantasy. But it's but the idea that that is reality right. is fascinating to me that that people will think that with porn, but they won't think about it with other movies. And it's, yep. it's acting and it's great. And it's what, if right. that's what you like, that's awesome. And there's all different kinds of amazing porn and some yeah. more erotica. And, and if that's what you like, that's great. But, but remember that it's, it's acting. Right, right. right. And, and um, on that topic, female ejaculation and squirting. I mean, I think like, women are like, I don't, do that? What's wrong with me? I mean, but and you actually went down the rabbit hole of female ejaculation. Yeah, I did. Yeah, share that because people have a lot of. I get. I used to when Bonk came out. I got a lot of people writing to me about female ejaculation. What? Yeah, a lot of people. So I think so. Female ejaculation is this idea that women will release an ejaculate like men do. And the answer is kind of yes or no. So there's these tiny little glands around the urethra called the skein's glands, and a little bit of fluid will leak out of there. And that you could call that ejaculate, but that's not anything that you would see like visually. It wouldn't be a metric. Um, and <laughs> you know where I'm going here, right? So it's not enough that your partner says she had a good time. You, you need to see some kind of large visible metric that you produced some magnificent result with your sword or something. I don't know. Um, and, so, and so this idea that um, a large amount of fluid is going to come out of the vagina or some glands around there. And there's, there's no gland capable of producing a large amount of fluid. Like it doesn't exist. If you think about the prostate, I mean, it produces three to four milliliters. Right. I mean, these right. videos, and I watched enough of them online. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's like kids don't look at my browser. <laughs> I mean, that, that they're clearly, it's clearly water. And there's actually a study that shows that, that women who report squirting, um, their bladder, you know, they empty their bladders, they do ultrasounds, their bladders fill incredibly quickly when they're excited. And then after squirting, their bladders are empty. Uh-huh. And the fluid is compatible with urine. Now, this doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with right. urine coming out during sex. I mean, sex is supposed to be wet and messy and fun. Like, who cares? Again, did you have fun? That's why they right. make navy blue towels. Put it on the bed. <laughs> Seriously. Every every bridal shower you go to, give my book and some navy blue towels. <laughs> and a quality vibrator. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, seriously, like, who else uses it? What else do you use a navy blue towel for? 
Uh, anyway, so um, <laughs> so so I think that this sort of became this idea that you have to prove something. And then, of course, what happens is women come in and they think there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I don't want to dismiss the experience as women who sure. say they squirt because sure. they could be having a stronger orgasm. An orgasm that makes your bladder empty might be stronger, right? If your yeah. nerves cause your bladder to empty with orgasm, you might be getting a different kind of intense stimulation. Right. So yes, it is possible that you have a greater sexual experience when right. you squirt. And um, it's, it's, but that doesn't mean that people who don't have yeah. something wrong with them. Right. And it, the, all of the data that we have would tell us that it's urine and that's fine. Who cares? Yeah. Right, right, right. It's just an interesting continue along the line of like, whatever men do, women need to right. do. I mean, even Viagra, there was such a, uh, uh, there's so much talk about what, when will we find the female Viagra? And I'm like, excuse me, sis, when do women need erections? Right, they don't. <laughs> Absolutely. And in fact, we actually have an equivalent of female Viagra. We have estrogen for changes related to menopause, right? So that would be the, that would be the equivalent. Estrogen increases blood flow to the vagina. So we actually have that. Mm-hmm. All that whole like evening the score is a total pharmaceutical marketing ploy designed to make a male construct of horniness. If mm-hmm. you don't have that, that there's something wrong with you. So yeah, talk about the um, there's spontaneous libido and there's receptive what, react, libido. Receptive. Yeah. Yes, right. So yeah. we used to say spontaneous libido, and this was based on you know it was a desire arousal. Masters and Johnson. Masters and right. Johnson, and this sort of this straight line, and that you come to it with sort of like libido, expecting sex. But we know that women come to sex for many reasons. They come to sex to have an orgasm. They come to sex just to feel good. They come to sex to be comforted by their partner, to feel close, to make their partner feel better. Like it's a relationship. Sometimes you do things for one person. Sometimes they do things for you. And it's, so it's about pleasure. And I think that pleasure often leads to orgasm too. So there's also that, but this sort of idea that, um, that, that people need to be spontaneously horny all the time, again, satisfies, a, uh, that's like a metric, right? And whose fantasy does that satisfy, right? right? right, right, right. Like, I, like I'm yeah. you, but someone cleans my house and puts my dishes away. And I'm like, hi. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, hello. <laughs> Come on yeah. in. Um, so I think that uh, you have to sort of think about yeah. all of those things together. Um, and yeah, this idea that that women are supposed to be spontaneously horny all the time. I mean, receptive libido is sort of like, yeah, I, I, I don't want to go to the party. I'm, I'm watching. I'm on the couch. I'm fine. Oh, but the party's going to be fun. Yeah, no. But you were at the party last time you had a good time. Yeah, yeah, I did. But I don't know. But hey, look, I'm starting the party down the hallway and we have cake. Oh, really? There's cake? <laughs> well, maybe I'll just come down and check the party out. That's receptive yeah. libido. Yeah. And then you have a great time and at the party. And then you're at the party. party and you're like, yeah. God damn it. And I, that's what matters. Yes. Did yeah, you yeah, have yeah. a good time at the party? Yeah, exactly. Were and you the happy other, you yeah. came? Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, the other thing. The other thing with all that is that it presents opportunities to sell women, you know, there's, there's prescription drugs for libido. There's all right. manner of potions and things that right. probably the directions say, rub this on your clitoris, rub really, really, really well. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, there is actually this, this product called Scream Cream, which has all these topicals in it that can't possibly work, but that doesn't stop your compounding pharmacy from selling it to you. But you have to rub it into your clitoris for 15 minutes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. Very effective. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. <laughs> uh, if only you, I didn't have ethics, I could just sell all this stuff. I know. But I do. Um, have you noticed that people don't like to say vulva? <laughs> My mother referred to the vulva as your, your bottom in front. Yes, bottom in front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. And people a, can't say it. It's a lovely word. Oh, it's lovely. It's a, you, I would name somebody. Vulva. Vulva. <laughs> vulva. Yeah, I mean vulva, clitoris, vagina, penis. No, I mean it's just you know. I mean, I, 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 I like them actually. So, um, so my kids will never watch this, so it's okay. <laughs> um, so I think that yeah, I mean, and we don't when we can't say the words when we speak in euphemisms. Then we impart shame. And there's nothing shameful about mm-hmm. an anatomic term. And if you can't describe your parts, then you can't tell your partner what you like. You right. can't tell your doctor when yep. there's something wrong. And, and this idea, again, that it's shameful is just, it's just wrong. Yeah, even the use of pro-choice. 
Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I as, mean, an, as a euphemism. Yeah. If you attach a euphemism, it means there should be shame and it's wrong. And Yeah. I mean, I'm very comfortable saying that I'm pro-abortion uh, because an abortion is a medical procedure. And if you need it, you need it. And if you don't, you don't. And if you're pregnant and you feel you need an abortion, you need one. I'm good with that. Uh, I think what's really important for people to understand is pro-abortion doesn't mean you're hauling women off subways or luring them into back alleys for BOGO abortions because they didn't realize they were pregnant. I mean, how little do you think of women, right? If, yeah. if you think that's what pro-abortion is. So I think a lot of women. And so that's why I'm comfortable using that term because I trust them to do what's right with their bodies. So I think, you know, choice is the difference between birth control pills, and an IUD. If we imply the same way we use choice to um, abortion, that's having birth control pills or no contraception, and that's not a choice. Mm -hmm. So I think it's super important for people to remember. And if euphemisms worked, we wouldn't be where we are with the state of abortion laws. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about using shame and fear and lies to sell women products they don't need. It seems to me, um, it seems like when I was when I was young, you saw a lot of ads for Summer's Eve, and then they you know, went away, and now suddenly they're back, and douching seems to be making quite a comeback. Yeah. And um, let's talk about that. Unnecessary, harmful, both, um, and also where whose idea? Do you need to... You know, like you said, it's a self-cleaning oven down there. Yeah, the vagina is a self-cleaning oven and, (laughs) and, and douches are like cigarettes for your vagina. They even have warning labels like cigarettes, if you read it. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they have warning labels. They increase your risk of pelvic inflammatory disease and bacterial vaginosis and HIV if you're exposed. Um, So I think it's super important. This idea of douches is basically the oldest tenant of patriarchy, that the the female reproductive tract is dirty and filled with toxins um, and needs to be prepped for men. Um, And so why does no woman ever get to say, wash him and bring him to my tent, right? (laughs) Yes. Except so, Cher, I think, said that. Cher, about- did Cher get, yeah. Oh, yeah. She's a bitch. She's an icon. There you go, right? Um, so I think, yeah. So it's this idea that women are dirty. And, uh, and you know, in, in ancient times, they thought that the uterus wandered the body and you would lure it back into place with fragrant herbs between the legs. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Um, uh, you know, that was hysteria, right? Your uterus wandering your body. I'm like, no, sweetheart, that's not hysteria. I'm going to show you what that is in a minute. Um, <laughs> so, so I think that that's like... This based on this core tenant. And then, of course, also the idea that the false belief that you can use a product vaginally as contraceptives, right? Mm, So those Lysol ads from the 20s and 30s were both a combination of dirty vaginas and also um, the idea that it was a woman's responsibility to not get pregnant. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, if you die from douching with it, whatever. Right. You know? Right, right. Yeah. Um, and it's not just the makers of Summer's Eve. It's it's all the kind of um, smaller, more natural, yeah, herbal hoo ha, whatever. That, I mean, it's you know vaginal most, steaming, right? I mean, or it's, maybe it was uterine steaming, uh, all or steaming of it, yeah. something. I don't it's, know. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 so funny that these things are marketed as natural. The most natural thing is for your vagina to smell like a vagina, not a pina colada. <laughs> Right? And why does nobody make sprays for testicles? Like puppy paws or something? Like, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Um, so I think that, yeah, it's very, you know, making women feel ashamed about their parts is a very effective business model. Very lucrative. Very lucrative. Yep. And whether it's Summer's Eve, whether it's wipes, whether it's yep. sprays, whether it's Big Natural yeah. telling you to put tea tree oil in your yeah, vagina yeah. or steaming your vagina yeah. or whatever, it's all the same grift, right. you know, whether it's natural or not. And Big Wellness, the wellness industrial complex, uses the same words as mm-hmm. the patriarchy. Pure, mm-hmm. clean, yep. natural, right? You could be describing, you know, a contestant for America's Next Virgin Bride, or <laughs> you could be describing, you know, a feminine spray. I mean, it's um, it's really yep. and calling even them feminine hygiene products. They're menstrual products. Mm-hmm. They're not feminine hygiene products. They're menstrual products. Yep. They're for menstruation. Nothing wrong with saying the word menstruation. Get over it. Yep, yep. There's two. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Two words you see over and over, natural and toxins. Could we just sort of generally debunk 
I mean, just that drives me personally kind of crazy. I know. I'm like, toxins. (sighs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, a toxin is a preformed substance made by a plant, animal, or bacteria. So Botox is a toxin um, that's made by bacteria. Uh, If you get bitten by a rattlesnake, that's a toxin. Um, So those are true words of toxins. Although we do use the term colloquially to describe substances that are harmful. But, you know, things like coffee enemas or douches to get rid of toxins or special diets to get rid of toxins, that's a total misuse of the term. And you have a liver and kidneys. And to do that, to remove any harmful substances from your body and your kidneys are so good. I only have one kidney and I'm still not full of toxins. So I'm just telling you that, you know, you are good. Everybody here probably has two kidneys. So you're even more toxin-free than me. So, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I think it's um, super important to remember that it's very predatory because big wellness uses fear to sell, yep. right? And I think that's a really important take-home message. If it's fear, 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 um, that's not how, you know, how science and health works. Yeah, exactly. Um, in light of our uh, cultural obsession with cleanliness, deodorization, um, our fear of bacteria and our addiction to Purell, I find the love of probiotics kind of fascinating. Oh, right. Um, that, anyway, uh, uh, um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the vaginal microbiome, who's living in there, what do you need to feed them? Um, should you give them roommates? So, <laughs> no, it's a self-cleaning oven. They don't need their pat. They're like the, the most cool like sorority sisters ever in there. They don't need anything else. Um, so the vagina is the coolest the, the vaginal microbiome, microbiome is super cool. So it's filled with all this good bacteria, mostly different kinds of lactobacilli, but there's some other good bacteria in there as well. And they produce lactic acid, which keeps the pH low. This idea that you can use a substance to change your vaginal pH isn't true. It's all an inside job from the lactobacilli. The other thing they do is um, there's this cool mucus that's all sort of like, a, think of it like a tennis net stretched over all the cells. And that's a physical barrier and also provides lubrication. So you don't have trauma when you have things inserted in there that you want to have inserted in there. And and then there is this, the vaginal discharge, the cells are shed about every four hours. And a really cool thing is it's kind of like, flypaper. So what happens is bacteria gets into your vagina and the bacteria doesn't know. It just wants to attach to a cell. That's what bacteria wants to do. And it doesn't know. It, meets the, it sees the first cell it sees. It's like, great, I'm going to attach there. But it's all the free floating cells in the vaginal discharge. And then they're wow. just flushed out. Wow. So it's such an amazing defense mechanism. It's so highly evolved. And so if you start thinking about even just douching with water damages that. And in fact, if you douche with water, you increase your risk of getting HIV twofold if you're exposed, wow. leave it alone. It, it's, it's got you covered. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Your vagina's like looking out for you. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, they're just even people like w- w- using wipes. Yeah, cleaning That's inside like, with wipes is very common. And again, that was why, amazing why, to me, yeah. Well, and it's so interesting that these wipes are so pushed for women. I'm like, well, men have rectums. Like, like yeah. what? Like what? Like yeah, why, yeah, why yeah. you know, and again, this idea that the vagina is dirty and it's not, it's, yeah. it's actually highly evolved and it's, it's a, it's really a marvel. Uh, uh, this is another of my favorite Jen Gunter lines. You were talking about, you know, not using something harsh on your vulva and your vagina. And you said, keep in mind, you are not removing baked on food. <laughs> Right. I mean, there are parts of your body you should be really cleaning, like your hands. Like if you make yeah. chicken, you should be really washing yeah. the salmonella off your hands. You're right. not baking chicken with your vulva. <laughs> I'm just saying. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Yeah. Um, one statistic I found a little depressing. You mentioned, um, I think it was that when 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 you talked to to women about douching and you kind of filled them in on on the realities of it and and the possible dangers of it, something like ninety percent said they still plan to continue doing it. Yeah, um, it- just that like facts don't seem to matter. Like we were we are taking our advice from friends and celebrities and not from people who know about it, and um, that. You know, and and people like Gwyneth Paltrow are capitalizing on that. She's like the Donald Trump of the vagina. She's just saying any crap. Yeah, basically. You know? Saying anything to sell anything. Yeah, I know. I I just, um, I find find that depressing. 
Well, it is, but it's understandable. So if your whole life you've been hurt, it's dirty. And the first person telling you this, you're like, what? Like it takes several points of contact to change someone's mind about things, right? We know that. Um, And uh, so there's that. Then there's this idea that generationally, like your mother, her mother, her her mother, her mother, going all the way back to the beginning of humanity has been told her vagina is dirty. And I truly believe that that affects how we see things. Like even subtle little conversations that you might be having with your child are affected by that. You walk into a drugstore and there's shelves of products designed to tame a normal vagina. And then you go to a natural quote, quote, site like Gwyneth Paltrow's, and they're telling you that you should steam your vagina because it's dirty. So everywhere, every single place you turn, it reinforces that belief. So how could you not think that way? Of course you would. So I think that's why, again, getting rid of the euphemisms and speaking openly about this, because women don't get to hear these conversations, right? They get to hear about feminine hygiene products. They get to hear about douches. They don't get these conversations. And so that's why I think it's really important that we have them. Yeah. Good. Thank you. And yes, and and you're doing so much of that and it's heavy lifting and, and I know you get a lot of blowback. So um, yeah. thank you. <laughs> I just, I just want to say right here. Um, um, do, 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 I, I find myself curious about um, Gwyneth, and I know you are up to your eyeballs in Gwyneth Paltrow, but um, do, do you f- um, feel that she believes the things on her site? Do you feel that she... Uh, what, what is going on with her? I mean, she's an, an intelligence probably woman. Well, um, I, somebody in Goop is a true believer, whether it's her or someone else, yeah. I don't know. But I did listen to the first Goop podcast, and uh, which was so boring. And that's why I never ended up writing about it, because I was like... Oh. <laughs> um, so I, good to put you to sleep. Um, and so she actually interviewed Oprah. And I'm like, how do you make an interview with Oprah boring? Like, I just don't understand that. But anyway, so she apparently told Oprah about... Well, not apparently, I was listening to this about how, you know, she was rethinking whether she should be doing all this alternative medicine because people were so mean. I guess that means me. I was so mean. Um, I'm like, no, that's called science, sweetheart. And, um, and, and then Oprah said she really believed that she should stay on that pathway. She gave her advice that she was doing the right thing, that there was something to this alternative oh, Oprah. medicine. Well, I mean, oh. she, you know, Marianne Williamson dedicated her book on weight loss to Oprah, um, oh. who I just finished reading oh. her book on depression, which is so predatory. It's horrific. Um, you know, it's anyway, it's just, it, that's a whole different conversation, but yeah. so it's somebody there is a true believer. I really believe that, um, whether it's Gwyneth, whether it's somebody else, but I think that they really believe they're doing something good. And I don't yeah. know if it's, if you say the lie long enough, you believe it. I mean, it could be like cognitive dissonance, you know, it's like, uh, I'd have to be a terrible person to be profiting off of all of these lies. And I'm not a terrible person. Therefore, they're not lies. Yeah. I mean, like you I, convince yourself somehow. I mean, she had, um, I mean, at the, I went to this in Goob Health Conference in New York a couple of years ago. And I, you know, I signed up under my real name and I, cause truth is my thing. Right. And, um, and nobody recognized me. I was like, and, uh, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you're just being narcissistic, Jen. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, there was a, 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 a psychiatrist there speaking who believes that depression is treated with daily coffee enemas, right? Like, and that no one ever needs antidepressants ever for, um, for depression. Uh, and, uh, and she also believes that you know, AIDS is a construct of big pharma. You know, AIDS AIDS doesn't exist. Really? It, oh yeah, no, it's a big pharma ploy. Oh. And you know, and and Gwyneth Paltrow gave this woman a platform. Now she didn't speak about these yeah. things, although she did say she never ever uses antidepressants for depression. Um, and so, but I guess if your health questionnaire really weeds out anybody who actually has depression, then maybe it's easy to not treat people who aren't depressed yeah. with not using antidepressants. Um, and she gave this person a platform. And I really thought a lot about that. And they got, you know, I wrote about it and then Jezebel and uh, Newsweek, I think, or Time picked it up. And they were just like, oh, well, we're just having conversations. I'm like, well, that's not really how it works. Oh, no. Um, yeah. You know, like, like yeah. if you if you really believe that you are bringing people good health care, yeah. how could you partner with someone who believes AIDS is fake? 
Yeah. Like, how could you yeah. do that? Like, yeah. like I, I, I mean, I've sat and held the hand. I mean, I, I did medical school in the eighties, right? Like we saw all these young men yeah. die and, and to say that that was fake, like mm-hmm. how, how, so I think that they must, yeah. they must truly be like on board with it in a way that I can't understand because yeah. the, the ethics of saying that, I just, I can't understand that. And the, and the instances where media kind of picks up on the, knowing that it's a flashpoint, uh, uh, picks up on these things and puts it out there is frustrating. Yeah. And, and like, you know, the LA Times and the, you know, the cervical cancer Gardasil. Yeah. Up on the, you know, taking an anecdote and having that stand in for evidence. Yeah. I mean, that happens that a lot thing. with vaccines and, you yeah. know, because again, fear sells, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, and people yeah. capitalize on it. And I yeah. just think, you know, if you want to do a good thing with your platform, you know, why would you sell a coffee enema machine? Like, I just don't understand that. Um, I don't, I don't get it. So I think they must be true believers because I don't, I don't know how someone could walk through that. Although I have to tell you, I mean, at the conference, they had a medium, right? You know, who did a cold reading as you walk through the room and we're in a room full of, I mean, the, the cheapest ticket was $650, right? So, you know, which I bought the cheap ticket, but there was like a $1,500 ticket. And it was like, there was 500 people there. And for the medium or for the whole conference? For the whole conference, was, oh, there was okay. 500 people there. And so this medium is in a room full of women who could spend 650 plus for a, a ticket for nothing, really. I mean, just eating chia seeds and hearing that death is real. <laughs> and, you know, her cold call question, she's a research medium, right? Like, what, research medium? <laughs> Her cold, her first cold call question was, there's a room full of all these women, right? She says, has anyone here ever thought about buying a purse recently? Oh my God. (laughs) Every time I walk through the airport and I see the Gucci store, I think, ooh, I'd like a Gucci purse. (laughs) Of course. So, you know, I mean, it's, yeah. And so that's healthcare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I get. We were talking in the green room a little bit about um, that medical providers have sometimes not given patients quite what they need in terms of of um, a safe place to talk and just a human interaction, yeah. and that maybe the, the alternative these alternative sites are giving that in terms of supporting and saying, oh yes, there is a solution. Even if it's not really a solution. Yeah. I mean, medicine has huge gaps. We have not studied enough things for women. We don't connect with people in the way we should. And these sites are offering a connection. We have to pay attention to that. I mean, people crave a connection. They, I think that's part of my success is I'm just like you probably expected if you follow me on Twitter. I mean, this is just people want authenticity and it really sort of was driven home to me with my son, um, Oliver, who has a fair amount of PTSD related to going to the cardiologist. He's had a bunch of heart surgeries. He's been in the intensive care unit a God knows how many times. I mean, like that kid has had it rough. And every time he has the echocardiogram where they run the ultrasound on his chest, I mean, it's like, I mean, it takes me two days to recover. Like there's, I'm like, do I have all the white wine in the fridge, you know, (laughs) to manage? It's horrible. And so two years ago we were there and I was just scrambling to say anything to distract him. And he's melting down. And this poor pediatric cardiologist is like the nicest man in the world. It's like, what have I done? And it's just because this kid is scared. So finally I said, you know, I have this one-eyed cat. And I said, think of Luna. Think about when she was a kitten and she had her eyeball removed and she managed to get through it. I'm just struggling, right? And the cardiologist stops and he goes, I have a one-eyed cat. (laughs) And Oliver looks at him and goes, really? (laughs) And she's almost blind too. And then that's all they did was talk about the goddamn cat. And he's doing the ultrasound. And I'm going, the cat? It was the cat? Yeah. That's what it, the cat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've had this cat for three years. I could have said it sooner. And it was that connection. And then all of a sudden, he wasn't with a scary medical professional. He was with a guy who had a one a cat who knew a lot about his heart. Yep. And now like there's no, now when we go, it's not a big deal. Yep. Like it's all fixed by that human yeah. connection. Yep. Um, we have uh, five minutes until the audience Q and A. Uh, so in five minutes, we'll be taking your questions for Dr. Gunter. Uh, so line up uh, at the, there's a microphone in the back of the room. Uh, if you would like to um, ask a question. So we will We've got five minutes here. Let me see. I wanted to, uh, I, I found this chapter fascinating in your book, and I, um, we've just got a few minutes to talk about it, but um, gynecologists today are treating patients with some new medical needs, and that is trans men and women. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a bit about the medical challenges 
that they face and some of the things they may not be getting from uh, gynecological care? Yeah. So I felt it was really important to include that and to put it right up at the front. I mean, this is a book about the parts and I want to respect every single person who has those parts. And as a vagina and vulvar expert, I see people who have problems, regardless of gender, it doesn't matter. If you have a problem with that part, I'm happy to fix it or do my best. Um, And I think that we think about how hard it is for, for many women to access care and how they're not listened to. And then think about the layers of if you're trans and how cruelly some people are treated. And, um, you know, the, that, that many providers don't even know about the care and you have to sit there and explain to your provider and they refuse to call you by your pronoun or they tell you there's something wrong with you, like, like you. And that's just so wrong. And I, I, when I first moved to the States, I worked in at the University of Kansas and I had the same clinic for the vagina and vulva. And one day I got a call from the kind of clinic that, you know, exists on government grants and, you know, handouts. And they wanted to know if I would see this, this trans woman who was having problems with her vaginoplasty that had been done in probably Thailand. Because in those days, everybody had to, I mean, yeah. you have to fly and leave the country to go somewhere you don't speak the language to yeah. have a big surgery. I mean, I can't even imagine. And I said, well, why are you calling to ask about like I just assume maybe yeah. they were wanting me to waive my fee or something and I'm like well why they said well we've called around and no one else would see her wow I was just like, really? Like I just, so I just thought that, you know, if I'm, I'm this gynecologist that people look up to that it was, I mean, one, it's super important to include it regardless because it's healthcare, but that I wanted to, to, to show everybody that anybody else writing about the vulva and vagina has to also step up and do the right thing. And since this, I've had actually so many lovely, but sad, um, private messages from, from people who are trans or they, their, um, their partners come out as trans or their son Mm -hmm. is going through transition and, um, and is on, you know, they have a trans son on hormone blockers and that they just, just having this represented in the book meant so much to them, but also that I was giving them more information that they they heard before. And that bothered me, but then I'm like, well, but that's why I'm here. And that's why I'm here to to try to give people as much information Mm -hmm. as possible in hopefully a non-judgmental way. Yeah, yeah. Is it just because there 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 are unique issues that some gynecologists just don't know, and they're like, "I'm afraid I don't know what to say," or uh, they? I mean, is it most of it isn't? I mean, or just dis, just discomfort in general? I with, think it mm-hmm. must be. I mean, there's maybe five to ten percent that is very unique, um, yeah. but most of it is not actually. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, okay, time for uh, some questions. Do we have a first? question? Yeah. Hi, my question is, given all the issues that can arise when we don't educate young women well on their health, especially with euphemisms, um, what can we do to make sure that we start off with truth and accuracy around that education from the beginning? That's a great question. So I think that every school should have high quality sex education at an early age, because that's where you need to get the information before kids hear the stories and before they see the images online. And studies actually tell us, for example, that if you are already experienced with condoms and then you watch pornography, which tends to not have condoms, that doesn't affect whether you think you should be using condoms or not. So we can vaccinate kids against making decisions that might have effect, affect their healthcare negatively with information. You know, when we tell kids to wear seatbelts, it doesn't make them drive dangerously, you know, when they learn to drive. So I think the answer is to insist that our lawmakers make this part of the curriculum. Um, because not only is it the right thing to do, but it's going to save healthcare dollars down the road. I mean, it's like, it's one of those win, win, win situations. And there should be no exemptions. This is just fact. So I think that, um, that we can push for it medically. And I also think young, impassioned women should go into politics so, so they can yes. write the laws. Hi, thank Hello. you both for being here. Um, my question is on why there's no male birth control and then some of the side effects that women experience from hormonal birth control, particularly changes related to discharge and how that could, again, relate to like douching and things like that. Right. So um, why is there no male birth control? Well, apart from the condom, um, I think it's because there just hasn't been any research dollars really put into it. Um, there, uh, you know, I think so. It's, I think it's really a funding issue. Um, there, you know, obviously it's a 
a different endocrinological system. And so you can't assume that necessarily this is going to be done the same, you know, that a pill is going to work in the same way. But, but I think that we're just suffering from a, a lack of research. Um, now, women bear the burden of pregnancy greater. And so I can understand how initial drives in that area focus on women. But I think we are now at the time where, you know, we've, we've got a lot of options for women. We need more options for men. So I think it's funding. As for the effects of different hormonal birth control on discharge, it can really vary. And that's kind of a long answer. There's certainly, I do cover a lot of it in the book. Um, but for the majority of women, actually, there are few changes. So the estrogen-containing birth control pill actually tends to reduce a woman's risk of having um, bacterial vaginosis because it actually um, increases good populations of lactobacilli. For a small percentage of women, it can increase yeast infections. So it's kind of a risk-benefit ratio, but it tends to be in favor of benefit. Um, and there can be some subtle changes from the Marina IUD as well. But a more in-depth review of that is probably not something I could do in this kind of Q&A session, but it's covered in depth in the book. Hi, thanks for a stimulating evening. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just would like to go back to the issue of ethics. Why isn't there more of an outcry against the doctors and the perpetrators who are like Goop, um, who obviously, um, there are so many operations and procedures they give to their patients because they want them without giving them the advice, this is not good for you. And then they go, patients go around doctor shopping to find a doctor who will do it. Why isn't this more carefully monitored and laws or whatever enforced? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know how all these stem cell clinics get away with it. I don't know how, you know, people get some of these procedures that are clearly not indicated for a lot of different things. I mean, you know, whether it's, you know, unindicated surgery for low back pain, whether it's a hysterectomy that wasn't needed, um, whether it's, uh, you know, you know, some type of unindicated, you know, genital surgery. I, I don't have an answer for you. I wish I did. And I think part of the problem is, is when there's no studies on something like, for example, stem cell treatments, well, you can't really say it's bad. You can't really say it's good. All you can say is it's unstudied. So you can't really say it's wrong. I, I do think that we should have laws that say that, you know, completely novel procedures should only happen under the guise of an institutional review board at, um, you know, so it should be at least have ethical oversight. I mean, so there's a difference between sort of bad decision-making, like someone who's clearly not a candidate for back surgery who gets one and that's bad decision-making. But then we have these completely untested Wild West procedures. And it should, it should be, in my opinion, illegal to do those outside of some kind of ethical oversight. Um, and it doesn't mean that, I mean, we have to we have to come up with new therapies. I mean, absolutely. But there should be a way to say, well, this is going to be submitted to an ethical review board and they're going to you know, sign off on it and say, there's some biological plausibility that that might be worth trying. And then we'll, you know, we'll collect 10 cases and then we'll stop and we'll see, did something bad happen? And we call those phase one studies, right? Where we test things. So, so I don't have an answer, but I think it's as long as people are making money off of things without any repercussions, you know, it's a wild west. Buyer beware. Yeah, it's very buyer beware. But that's why I'm really obsessed with this idea of informed consent. If you told someone, well, I want to give you this injection, but oh, actually there's absolutely no studies and there's no long-term outcomes. That's a lot different than saying, I can give this injection. It's going to fix you right up. Yeah. One's informed consent. One isn't. All right. Hi, Dr. Gunter. Uh, my question is about tampons. I've seen a lot of ads lately about natural tampons that don't have the chemicals that drugstore brands have. And not like a scented tampon, just like the normal one you get at the drugstore. Is there anything to that? Or is this just a new company trying to sell their brand of tampons? Yeah. Well, so first of all, natural is a marketing term. It doesn't mean anything. It has no meaning. And there's no studies. It's not like they're saying, well, we published this data in this you know, journal of chemistry to show like they don't have any published data. So it's just this sort of claim. Um, most tampons are not studied independently. What they've done is they've just proven they're the same as something else that's already on the market. So, I mean, I think that, you know, there's no studies. And so, yeah, it's, it's a great marketing gig and that's why you can charge people more money. Um, I can't tell you if the way that 
you know, that cotton is sourced is better for the environment or not. I can't answer that question, but I can tell you that, that medically it doesn't make any difference. There's no data, there's no data to support those claims make any difference. So you mean I shouldn't buy those hand crocheted Etsy tampons? Oh God, no. <laughs> I bought those too. I bought these crocheted tampons on Etsy. I mean, they hold like five milliliters of fluid. Like, I'm like, no, I didn't try putting it up really. I'm telling you. This. There's only so much I'm willing to do for science. This book was an eye opener for me. Anyway, okay. So uh, okay. next. Hi. Um, I was one of those women who had the O shot and had complications. Oh, And... Um, you know, I had been on bioidentical hormones, but they weren't quite doing the trick. I had mild issues. And so I researched the O-Shot, and everything I read said the worst that could happen was that nothing would happen. And now my vulva just basically hurts, and it didn't before. <laughs> and uh, if I had a little dryness, I have a lot of dryness now. So, but I looked, I mean, I researched... I went to three different practitioners who were offering it. I was told uh, basically that you're just injecting your own blood back into you, so there would be nothing bad that could happen. And you said there, there have been complications. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find them. What were they? And how do you find these things? So the, the problem with a Google search is that can be controlled by a lot of things, right? So yeah, so so the the people who who have trademarked this, um, they get things written up in all different kinds of newspapers. They send out press releases, and so essentially they're controlling their Google search results. Should uh, we say what the O shot is? Yeah, so the O shot is injected of um, of of. Uh, um, platelet-rich plasma. So you, so plasma, basically the water in your blood back into your body. And it supposedly has growth factors. I, I, we have no idea what it could do. And, and I'm, I'm devastated to hear this from you because I, I, this is not unanticipated from someone who understands this area. And I've actually written about this several times. I've refused to be interviewed by women's magazines when they want to, pr you know, promote the O-Shot. I'm like, that's like being interviewed if you're interviewing an anti-vaxxer. Like I, I can't, like that's false balance. And so I, I don't know how to stop that, but the answer I always tell people is to is to not search on Google. You have to go to um, search engines that are that are aren't affected by ads. And so the American College of OBGYN advises against that procedure. And and they have a they have a pamphlet on that. And if you search inside their site, then you don't get ads. It's not controlled by Google search. But people don't know that we don't teach people how to research their information online. And so, um, yeah, I mean, there's, um, you know, it's, it's a completely unstudied procedure. The only publications in a predatory journal where the name, the, the diagnosis dyspronia is spelt incorrectly over and over again. Um, and, and the person who has, I'm not even going to say his name, who invented the O-Shot, the address of his practice is called medical school. So if you didn't know that was a predatory journal, right, you would look at that and you would say, oh, this is from a medical school. It's in a journal. It must be right. So I, I'm just, I'm so devastated. So many crappy rinky-dink journals that yeah. it's very hard. You go on PubMed and you do a search and yeah. you don't necessarily know if the International Journal of Urology, what, I mean, whatever it is, yeah. I don't know. That's actually an okay journal, but yeah. yeah. I don't know where I got that one. You don't want them to get upset. But yeah, anyway, but I'm, like, I guess you can look at, can you look at the, uh, what is it, the factor, the... You can, yeah, Beale's list, but it's yeah. it's so complicated yeah. for somebody like me who knows the literature yeah. and who knows everything, like to to write the blog post I wrote on the O-Shot a couple of years ago. I mean, that took me days and days to sort through everything to track stuff down. And so I think it's it's the fault of every single reporter who wrote about the O-Shot who didn't actually do the research, mm -hmm. right? Because they helped spread that message. Yep. Um, it's the fault of algorithms that allow people to control things. So I, I, I don't think that's the answer that you want, but... Um, but I'm sorry. <laughs> but, um, I, and I did, by the way, write my gynecologist and she wrote back and she said, I don't see any harm, but I don't think it's going to do anything. So even she, yeah, you know, it, it, based on the theory. Um, and so what were the complications? Because I couldn't find any. So I've seen people who have chronic pain afterwards and um, infections. So, and you know, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, and several people have left comments on my blog as well yeah. about, you know, complications that they've had. When something is untested, 
we don't know what we don't know. So this idea that I can't see any problems, you can't say that, you know, if there's growth factors there, I could make HPV grow. Like we don't know. I could think of all kinds of ways. And that's why we need to research things. That's why, because there are drugs we study all the time and we think, well, I had no idea that would happen, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, like the, um, you know, people started researching, um, you know, we got Viagra because it was originally studied for a heart condition. And you know what? It didn't work too well for increasing blood flow to the lungs, but you know what? It increased blood flow to the penis and the people were getting better erections. So sometimes there are positive consequences of doing studies and sometimes there are negative consequences, but I think it's really the idea of, people offering the lure of a quick fix and not thinking that we all deserve quality medical research because you can't have informed consent without quality data. I guess my best answer. This is our last audience question. Thank you. Could you remark upon the use of postmenopausal estrogen, the risks and benefits? So that's I, I couldn't possibly answer that question here because it has to be individualized. Um, so vaginal estrogen is totally safe unless you are someone who's had breast cancer and it is on an aromatase inhibitor. But even then, if you have breast cancer, you need to individualize that with your doctor. But if you've never had breast cancer, vaginal estrogen is fine. Um, systemic hormone replacement therapy needs to be individualized. For some women, it's very beneficial and other people don't need it. Um, I'm on it because I have a very strong family history of osteoporosis. My mother died from osteoporosis. So So my risk-benefit ratio is going to be different from another woman's. The best place to get information on hormone replacement therapy is the North American Menopause Society. And if you want to know if you're a candidate for it, they have a great app called MenPro, which you can download for free. So that's this idea that you can search inside a medical professional organization without being contaminated by Google or anything else. And you walk through and it'll tell you, you just download the app. I'm probably doing it now, get MenPro. Um, And, uh, and then it will help walk you through what your symptoms are, what, you know, and uh, what your medical history is, what your cholesterol is, what your high blood pressure is. And I'll tell you what, you know, if, if you're a candidate or not and go from there. So that's the short answer that I can give. And um, soon there's going to be yes. Dr. Jen Gunter menopause Bible. Yes. Yeah. The, my next book is called The Menopause Manifesto and it's going to okay, rock manifest- your world. I'm looking forward to that one. You know, not that it's appropriate for me. My anniversary. That's right. uh, It is an informed tradition to ask all of our speakers the following question. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? My 60-second idea to change the world is to make, um, actually, menstrual products free and available for everybody because... Because... Half the population should not bear the burden of perpetuation of the species. Menstruation benefits every single person. We are all here because someone menstruated. And even if you are not planning on having any children yourself, when you're 70, I'm going to assume that you're going to want a doctor to take care of you or an ambulance attendant to drive you to the hospital or roads to be fixed so the ambulance attendant can go. You don't want to be living in children of men, right? (laughs) So menstruation benefits everybody. And so we all need to make sure that every person who needs menstrual products can get it freely, cheaply, and hopefully everywhere they need it. That's my idea to change the world. All right. Well, thank you to Dr. Jen Gunter for joining us here tonight at Inform at the Commonwealth Club. Please join her in the lounge because she will be signing copies of this excellent book and you guys or somebody you know, somebody needs this, but this book is fantastic. Um, it's called The Vagina Bible, The Vulva and the Vagina, Separating the Myth from the Medicine. I am Mary Roach. Good night. Thank you. Thank you.